All right, let's dive into God's Word. Would you go ahead and take out your Bibles? We're going to be in the physical Bibles today. We will be going through passages in Matthew and Luke. We're going to begin in Luke, jump to Matthew, back to Luke, just so you're aware. Uh, we are in part 59 of our series, Being Jesus, and I entitled this morning's message, The Danger of Self-Reliance. And if you could take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door as well, uh, I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank with some kind of super obvious points, right? So let me, let me begin with just a series of three questions, and then I'll give you the fill in the blank. Uh, if, a, if you're in a building and it's on fire, and someone says, you need to get out, and you don't get out and take their advice, what's going to happen to you? Ah, oh, it's not going to go well, right? If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've contracted a disease that is fatal unless you take this uh, proper medication, in the old school we called it an antidote, right? If you don't take this, you are going to die and you say, no, thank you, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. If someone issues you a warning about what bad is going to befall you unless you take certain steps otherwise and you decide to not take those steps, what's going to happen to you? A bad result. You go, Lance, well, okay, we get it. It's obvious. All right, here's my point. It's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. You ready? To reject salvation is to invite destruction. To reject salvation is to invite destruction. Here's why it's so critical. Somehow, the world has twisted the offer of Jesus's rescue into something negative. That's weird. That the world would view Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, as if that is a narrow-minded, mean thing to say. Oh, sure, so Jesus is saying, unless you do it my way, I'm sending you to hell. And then people get agitated by that. But let me rephrase back to what we were just talking about. If someone says, you're already in danger, let me rescue you, and you say, no, you are selecting that other option. You've actually made a decision. And your decision is, I would rather remain in my current condition. What if that current condition is dangerous? And when someone seeks to help you out and you say, oh, sure, you want to do it your way, uh, I'm doing it the only way. I'm trying to rescue you and get you out of here, right? So if the Titanic's going down and someone has a lifeboat and you go, oh, sure, it's got to be your lifeboat. <laughs> it's a lifeboat. Get in the lifeboat. It's joyful to be rescued that somehow we make it into a Jesus is trying to push some agenda. He's saying, listen, you are in danger and I am not all right with that. I would like to rescue you. To say no is to make the other decision. Do you understand that the way that it works is all sin casts to hell? So if we're not dealing with our sin problem, then we are already headed there. The whole idea of a savior is to say, I don't want that for you. Let me help you and fix it. 
that actually is joyful. That is called good news in the scriptures. So we need to wrap our minds a little bit more into the idea that instead of God just wanting to send everyone to hell, God actually wants everyone in heaven with him. God's love is so great and so amazing. It even says in scripture that he loved the broken, rebellious world so much in their messed up state that the father sent his one and only son that whoever would respond, would believe in him, would never die, but would have eternal life. That's a big deal. And so that's where we're going to camp today. We're going to continue on in the theme of last week, right, where Jesus was telling a series of stories about how the world's going to wrap up, who's going to get in heaven, who's not going to get in heaven, how that whole story were. And he kept using parables, a bunch of stories that were kind of teaching tools. And so that's where we're going to pick it up again. Some of the stories you're going to hear sound very, very similar. They're actually different stories and different accounts, so I didn't combine them. But they're very, very similar. And you go, why does he keep saying the same thing? Because in the Bible, if anything is repeated, it means it's super important. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell. Is that important? Well, yes, it is. So Jesus has an awful lot of stories about that. The way that the Jews believed was that in the end of the world, God would send his Messiah and he would rescue the Jewish people and have a massive feast. In the Old Testament scriptures, what God really said was, it will be for all, all types of people. But by the time Jesus was around, it, in their minds, it had narrowed down to only Jews and only good Jews. That excluded everyone else from being at the party. And Jesus said, that's not accurate. Let me tell you a story. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Let me see here. It's probably going to be about page 874. Maybe in the Bible's under the seat in front of you. That might get you there a little faster. And it begins like this. When one of those who reclined at the table, who was sitting at the dinner party with Jesus, heard these things that he was saying, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So where are we at? Well, the context is simply this. Jesus got invited to a dinner party with a bunch of rich people. They were the religious leaders at the time. They were lawyers and scribes. They were experts in the law, and they wanted to bust him on stuff. He goes to that meeting, or he goes to that dinner, knowing that they don't like him, and so he begins to tell them a bunch of things they need to know, but they don't want to know, and he even kicks off the dinner party by a healing now, the way that they believed in their religion was that on the Sabbath, you don't do anything, not even heal someone. Well, Jesus said, that's silliness, that's baloney, and he looks around in the dinner party, and he sees a guy who has the disease dropsy. And so he says, hey, buddy, come here for a second. What's going on? Well, I have dropsy. All right. You don't anymore. You're healed. And everyone didn't know what to do with that. Well, why would he do it on the Sabbath? Why would he agitate? What's, what's, what's he trying to do? And Jesus knew that. 
And so he starts telling him a series of stories of going, man, you guys don't get it. You don't understand what's really going on. You're only here because you're trying to look good and advance your own cause. So let me tell you, and this is what we studied last time, don't go into a party and take the seats of honor. It's going to be really embarrassing when the host comes up and says, uh, you're in the wrong seat. Can you move? And he said, and don't just throw a party to advance your own case by inviting everyone that can repay you. And then you do this mutual climbing of the ladder thing. We are to use our resources to bless those who do not have. So he's been telling him these things, and all of them are getting more and more agitated. Well, he's not done. So it says this, verse 16. But he said to this guy who's like, man, it's going to be awesome when we're all at the table up in heaven on that great feast. And Jesus is like, uh, we're not all going to be there, buddy. And he tells him this. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. And he invited many. So he threw this huge party and invited many people. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. All right, we got to pause again. There's multiple stories about banquets being thrown, and they don't throw parties like we throw parties. So let me clarify. When we throw a party, it goes like this. Hey, I'm having a party on this date at this time. Are you available and would you like to come? RSVP, yeah? And then everybody lets us know and then we know who's coming. Now, in the ancient world, they don't have the immediate let's get the party ready thing. Uh, parties back then had to be orchestrated very different. And so what they did is they would send out an invitation to say, I'm throwing a party do you want to come right off the bat? And you go, well, when is it? I have no idea. Well, okay, you're having a party. Yeah, do you want to be with me? That's actually what I'm asking. I'm going to throw a party. Do you want to come hang out with me? I'm actually the attraction. You want to come hang out? I'll bless you with food, and we'll have a great time. Do you want to be with me? Once everybody RSVPs, you know what how big the party's supposed to be, and then you make adjustments. Depending on the size of the party will depend how long it takes you to prepare for said party, because these are large gatherings. And for us, it's kind of like, oh, I'm having a party, man. I got to go grab like 20 McNuggets, and I got to... Okay, <laughs> there was no fast food. There was no let's grab it at the store. There's no last-minute preparations. Everything's made from scratch, and even to the degree of... What animal should I kill? You understand what I mean? Like, there's a bunch of burgers, but they're all walking around right now. <laughs> and you got to go, and then start cutting this little guy up. So you got to know who's coming, because once they commit, the cow commits. You know what I mean? <laughs> all right. So I need to know if you're coming, and then once it's ready, I'll let you know. Then we all come and hang out because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have, so you're not storing things for a long time. Everything's fresh and go. That's how parties went. So what it said was he sent out invitations. Everybody already locked in and committed. And now the party was ready. It's time to go. So let's break this down. What is he trying to say? Who's the inviter guy? That's God, right? And who's the servant who says everything is ready? 
probably Jesus. Could be anybody that God sends, but it's probably Jesus. Why? In my mind, it's probably Christ because the way that it works in history is that God went silent on the Jewish people for 400 years. And all of a sudden, the Messiah shows up and says, the kingdom of God has now come. We're ready. That was Jesus' message. Then on the cross, when he breathed his last, do you remember some of his last words? They were, it is finished. In other words, Jesus is saying, man, my father invited you. Now I got it all done. Here we go. The party's ready to go. And he invites everyone to partake in it. Well, who is being invited? It says that he invited many. In this parable, it is the nation of Israel. All right? Now, the problem is Jesus is addressing the religious leaders about the nation of Israel. So it's hard to separate out. Who's being invited? The nation does what the leaders tell them to do. That's kind of how it works. So if Jesus is going to bust the leaders, the nation gets busted because they're all going to follow the leadership, okay? And remember, they've already been invited once, they already committed, and now it's time for the party. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field and I got to go out and see it, so please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them, please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things to his master. Wait, wait, they all alike. That means as one big group, they all made excuses. Well, that's why you're talking to leadership. The leadership has led them all to not take it seriously, so they don't care about the party anymore. The nation began to make excuses because the leaders began to make excuses. Are these excuses legitimate? It depends on how you want to look at it. It depends on what you value. Um, I would say no, largely because they even sound bogus, okay? Hey, I bought this land, and I got to go take a look at it. Oh, so you already bought stuff you never even saw. Oh, you know what? I bought five yoke of oxen. Man, I got to go check them out. No, you didn't. Nobody buys five yoke of oxen that can farm a hundred acres and you don't know what they look like. That's ridiculous. And he goes, well, I got married. And you go, okay, well, maybe that's legit because according to the Old Testament, when you get married in Israel, you weren't supposed to have any responsibilities for a year. So you could work on prepping your marriage and being a couple. Yeah, but you're not, this is a party. It's not, this isn't an obligation. This is, hey, come hang out and have dinner and let's laugh together. That was not on the list of things that they needed to get out of, right? So they're all making these excuses, and it kind of has to do with, you know, I don't think it's important anymore. I got my life going on, and I don't want to go anymore. All right. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Well, that's weird. Why does he have to go quickly? Remember, there's no refrigeration. Everything's ready. Come on. There we go, everybody. Having a party right now. Yeah? Go out and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What do those folks have in common? 
They are the rejected of society. So all the rich guys at this party, they think that they're better off, they're more righteous, they're more blessed because they're super good guys, that God likes them more. And they think that anyone else that is poor, God doesn't like as much. And they think that anyone that is handicapped, God doesn't like as much. And Jesus said, uh, that's not right at all. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to go scour the city and scoop up all those that were not originally invited, right? And here's what he says. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done, but there's still room at the party. Man, we, we plan for a lot of people. The master said to the servant, all right, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. I want you to fill it up and I want you to go out of the city limits. In a story about Israel, who are outside the city limits? Gentiles. Uh-oh. Do you understand who he's talking to? The rich elite who think they're the biggest and best. And he said, yeah, you guys got invited first. You're out I'm now bringing in everyone you look down on and everyone you never even imagined would be at my king's feast. So yeah, I'm bringing in the Gentiles. All this is incredibly shocking. Let's turn to Matthew 22, verse 1. Matthew 22, verse 1. Back up two, uh, two books. Matthew 22, 1. Jesus has another story. This time he's teaching in the temple and the religious leaders are listening in. And they're getting agitated again because everyone's starting to go, man, I like this Jesus guy. This guy's awesome. He's kind of revolutionary, but I, I mean, he's so loving and kind and, and he seems to care about me. I like this guy. Well, they don't want him to be liked. They want him to be rejected. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, the prince. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And that phrase in Greek means they repeatedly would not come. So they got asked more than once. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, look, you guys, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come on to the wedding feast. That means he went out again after being rejected, invites them in and says, you guys, time. We don't have a lot of time. Let's go. But they paid no attention. It wasn't important to them. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Whoa, what are we, what are we talking about now? Things just shifted into the weird, right? Who's the inviter? God. Who's the bridegroom or the son? Jesus. Who's he getting married to? Us, the church. So who are all these servants that have gone out and told them to get ready? The prophets, the people that have spoken for God throughout history. This is a history lesson. This is really the story that God kept trying to get Israel's attention, saying, I want you to be with me, and they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to go God's way. So he kept bringing in prophets to go, man, things are way out of line. You got to turn this thing around or bad stuff's going to happen. And bad stuff had to happen. 
I've told you uh, uh, repeatedly, in 722 uh, BC, the north got wiped out by the Assyrians. In 586 BC, the south got wiped out by the Babylonians. God had to remove the entire nation of Israel, except for a little remnant, out of their land to get them re-racked. After 70 years, he brings them back and says, all right, guys, are you going to walk with me? Well, then they went astray again. So he sends in prophets. They're killing the good guys, saying they don't want any part of it. What do you think is going to happen when a king invites his people to an event and they say no? Is it really just an invitation? If a king suggests something, don't you think it's more of a command? Now, he may be polite, but you don't want to mistake his kindness for weakness, right? If he tells you to do something, you do it because he's the king, especially when it's his son's wedding and you're still going, it's not important to me. Then what is important to you? Clearly, it's not my kingdom. I want you to see the grace. He issues out an invitation and they reject it. He issues it again and they reject it. He issues it again and they reject it. He sends out servants and they kill him. He sends more servants and they kill him. Do you understand how much God is consistently, his love is compelling him to keep going after people? And it just keeps going badly, but he won't give up. But there comes a day, and this is what we find out. Verse 7, and the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Wow, that was intense. Is that appropriate? This, in my opinion, is prophecy. Why? This was written about an incident that where Jesus lived, and Jesus told this story approximately A.D. 32. It was written down by Matthew approximately A.D. 80. What happened between those two dates? The destruction of Jerusalem. When Matthew writes this down, he's reflecting on Jesus' words because 40 years after Jesus said this, the Romans destroyed the city, burned it down, wrecked the temple, and tore the walls down because of the revolutionary ideas that the Jews wanted to take out the Romans. This is prophetic, in my opinion, that Jesus just said, listen, we're not even, you, in the story, you kind of go, really, they didn't come to your party, so you burned them all up? He's recounting history and saying, do you know what's next? You guys are all getting shut down, and that's not what I want. Oh, powerful. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is still ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Oh, wait, who's this new Motley crew? 
right? Who's the good and the bad? Who are all these folks? This is Jesus and his team coming in and saying, come to me, all of you who are thirsty, and I will give you living water. Come to me, all you who are hungry, and I will give you bread. That if anyone calls upon my name, I can rescue you. Do you want rescuing? Do you want goodness? Do you want blessing? Then I want you all to come in to me. Well, a lot of people respond because they want what Jesus can offer, but they don't always want it for the right reasons. Doesn't the church kind of seem complicated in the sense that you never know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Everyone kind of dresses similar, and you kind of just go, oh, I guess they're all good. And then something really bad happens, and you're like, wow, I never saw that coming. Okay, it's a mixed bag. Is everyone that calls themselves a Christian a Christian? Is everyone that goes to church following the Lord? Is everyone that's in a Christian nation a Christian? Is everyone that's in a Christian culture a Christian? The answer to all those is absolutely not. And all that complication, you're going, man, I don't even get it. So who's in and who's out? Because everywhere I look, I don't even know who's doing what. And so he tells this story going, man, when I invited, I said, God so loved the world that I've shown up and given you an invitation. But an invitation doesn't mean that we're good. It just means I love you. Ah, that's different. So he continues on in the story, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? Okay, let, let's, let's pause. These guys just came in off the road, so... I mean, they could have gone home first, but they, they, it, it's right away. So where was he supposed to get wedding garments? Well, there's two views on this, according to commentators. There's some evidence in history that some customs and cultures, the king provided the wedding outfit. So he would kind of hand out at the door, kind of this, hey, let's get ready. We're all going to look good today, and I'm going to hand you the stuff. So if that's the case, this parable means... God's done everything to set the table, and you're not even taking advantage of what he's given you. The other way is saying all God is requiring is that you take it seriously. It means that you actually go home and change your clothes as opposed to saying, oh, it's no big deal. You know what? Free booze, free uh, food. I'm going to go the way I am. Who cares if I'm in my work gear? He's saying if you're not taking it seriously, we don't even have a connection. You don't just, it's not all about you, it's about me, God says. And so sure enough, he said, friend, how'd you get in here? Did you not take it seriously enough even to change? Did you not wear what I gave you? Whichever way it goes, the guy's not ready. And it says the man was speechless. He's got nothing to say, no excuse, you're right, didn't take it seriously, didn't do anything for it, didn't think it was a big deal. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? It means we need to take it seriously that if God invites us to be a part of it, that we pay attention and we do what's required. What's required? Surrender. Is surrender hard or easy? 
I don't know, it depends how stubborn you are. Right? Turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Let's bounce back there. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time, at that very time, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What? What in the world does that mean? We don't know. There is no recording of this story at all. However, we know a lot about history between Pilate and the Jews. Here's the story. Pilate was a governor for Rome, but was a long way from Rome. It's really hard to lead in the outskirts, especially when you're dealing with a people like the Jews who do not like you. And they want to revolt any chance they can get. Now, in Israel, you had a couple zealous groups. One of them happened to be down in Jerusalem. The other one was way in the north, and they were the Galileans. The Galileans were famous for being revolutionaries. Who's the most famous Galilean? Jesus. That's where he's from. So they're the revolutionaries, and they're always causing uproar, and they said, hey, do you remember that story? Well, there was a story where just Jews in general, they were angry at Pilate because he wanted to fund his new project for a water supply from temple money, and the Jews didn't like him anyway, so everything he did was irritating. So they start rioting. He sends in all his guys incognito in the crowd they then take off their disguise and start hacking people apart. Well, that's, that's one way to quell a rebellion. They didn't like him. And so was that what they're referring to? No, it just means that Pilate and the Jews were always going head to head. Somewhere there was a tie-in of they were doing sacrifices and then he was slaughtering people. And, and you go, so what's the point? Here's the point. Verse 2, Jesus said, he answered them, what, are you telling me the story because you think that they were bad guys that died? That you're more righteous than they were because you survived? Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, that's not how it works. Unless you repent, all of you will die. Or how about, verse 4, Jesus said this, or how about the 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam, that's near Jerusalem, uh, the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, that's not how it works. I tell you, unless you repent, everybody dies. What's the point of the story? The Jews believed that they would be rescued, first of all, because they're Jews. But they had another view that all suffering was tied to sin. If anything bad happened to your life, it's because God didn't like you. It's because you were doing something wrong, maybe even secretly, and God knew about it, so now he was going to blow you up. And Jesus said, that is absolutely ridiculous and absurd. Stop with all that garbage. Oh, the only reason why you lost somebody is because they were bad. Oh, the only reason why you're in a wheelchair. Oh, the only reason why you have a handicap. Oh, the only reason why you, it's because you're doing something wrong. Jesus said, no, that's not how it works. Do you really think those folks on whom the tower fell are worse sinners than everybody else? That's why they died? No, let me tell you how it really is. Y'all deserve a tower to fall on your head. 
everybody deserves death. This whole game of my sin's not as important as your sin and I'm better than you and all that, it's silliness. Darkness is darkness. Blackness is blackness. If your soul is twisted out, it's distorted. And you trying to say that you're better than me or I'm better than you compared to a holy God is absolute absurdity. So Jesus said, let me level the playing field. Everyone dies. And no, not everyone's dying because they're worse than somebody else. Do you understand? Death rate, 100%. Sin, 100%. Stop playing this game. People die because you're in a dangerous world. People die because somehow we got to go from here to there. People pass away. And that's how it has to go. It doesn't mean they did something extra wrong. Let that go. And he told them this parable, verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, sir, how about we let it alone this year also until I dig around it, let the water get to the roots and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, that's great, well and good. But if not, then, then we can cut it down. What does that mean? Who's, who's the owner of the vineyard? God. Who's the vine dresser? Who's the worker? Jesus. So let's play that scenario. The father comes walking through his vineyard, which is what? the world. And he comes walking through and he says, hey, son, I've been checking out these folks, right? Let's take that guy over there, Rick. And, you know, I'm looking over at Rick and I've been looking for fruit to come out of this guy's life that somehow we're connected. I'm looking for any evidence that we are together and I'm not seeing anything. You know what? Let's just take Rick out. Why in the world is he taking up space? And Jesus says what? Dad, I completely understand. I completely understand your perspective, and here's the deal. I just want a little more time with him, okay? Here's what I want to do. Let me do a little bit more work on him. Let me bring a little bit more stuff to the roots. Let me just put a bunch of manure on his head. <laughs> he might turn around. And then, if he doesn't produce fruit after a year, you're right, let's call it. He's out. But if he does, awesome. What I want you to see is Jesus' heart for us. He's the interceder all the time going, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. We got to do this. We got to do this. It's not like the father's going, oh, I want to kill them all. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the point. The point is the grace of God and his patience of going, okay, we're going to keep coming at you, keep coming at you. But at some point, we're calling it. We're not doing this forever. And you go, well, that's mean because it means like if I'm not producing for God, stop. Remember the Bible concept of producing is this. You don't produce anything of yourself. You hook up. It's almost like a hose connected to a water source. The hose doesn't come up with the water. The water comes from somewhere else when it's connected and it goes through the hose. So God's saying, all I want you to do is be connected to me. I'll do all the stuff. I just need to see some water coming out of you to know you're connected to my source. 
It's not like I'm asking you to come up with water. I'm not asking you to produce fruit. I'm telling you, I'll make the fruit. You just stay connected. So for so many of us, there's no fruit because there's no connection. Nothing's going on. It's not an, a challenge to work harder. It's a challenge to be with God more. That's all. Huh. He went on his way through the towns and villages. Jesus was teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Man, are only a few people getting saved? Is it going to be like a, a small gathering? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. There's probably been a hundred different ways that people have preached the story of why it's narrow to get to heaven. So I don't know which ones you've heard. I've probably heard them all. And they, they go something like this. It's a narrow gate or a narrow door because you have to go in single file. You can't go in in a group. You can't say, hey, me and my group, we're Christians. I don't care about your group. What are you doing? You individually have to engage with God one-on-one. -on -one. You do not get to go in as a herd. It doesn't matter who you're married to. doesn't matter who your family is. doesn't matter anything else. You individually have to go head-to-head -head with God, so it's going to narrow it down into single file. Maybe you've heard that sermon. Or maybe you've heard the sermon that says, maybe it's a narrow gate because if your head's too big, you can't fit in. <laughs> right? You've heard that one? Right? Why? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I mean, there's all these different sermons I can teach, but the point is, it's narrow. And he said, I want you to strive to get in there. And you go, strive? What does that even mean? That's where we get the English word agony from. You got to want it. You got to own it. It's not that you have to do extra work. It's that you have to have the right heart to want it. Do you even want to be a part of this? Not, hey, if it works out for me, that's great. Yeah, maybe I'll do something with that. No, it's I want you, God. I don't just want your stuff. I want you. Do you understand that in heaven, what you're going to get is God? If that's not sufficient for you, you're in it for the wrong reason. If you're in it for what you think you're going to get there, God is what you get there. And that should be sufficient. That should be impressive. That should lead you to want to be in heaven. So there's all these heart tests, and, and for a lot of us, we're not in it for the right reasons. He said, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And you're like, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like God's going to just keep out some people? Well, here's how he explains it. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and then you began to stand outside and to knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. He'll answer you, I don't even know where you came from. So who is he excluding? Those that never took it seriously until it was too late. He's not excluding you going, oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you're not good enough. That's not the exclusion. The exclusion is, I'm calling you, and at some point I'm going to shut the door. So how many times do I need to call your name before we do something about this? Hmm. Then you'll begin to say, wait, 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 we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Who's, who would say that? The Jews, right? Jesus lived in their land. 
taught in their streets. They had dinner with him. They're having dinner with him in some of our stories. And he said, I will tell you, I don't even know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the forefathers of the Jewish faith and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Well, that's not going to be a good day. You're going to see who got in and you didn't because you didn't even think it was important. You had your own thing going. And the people will come from east and west, from north and south. Uh Uh-oh, those are Gentiles. And they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And seriously, check this out. Some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. What's this point? Guys, you all think you know how it's going to wrap up, and I'm reminding you once again, you do not. This whole business about... I get in because of my lineage. I get in because my own righteous acts. I get in because I, you know, I think I should. I get in because I'm American. I get in because I'm a good person. I get in. Do you understand how that's not how any of this works? You get in because you know God and he knows you. That's called a personal relationship. That's how it works. And so... Jesus is just trying to reset the scene and say, I'm trying to rescue you. If you don't want my rescue, you're making another choice. But that's not what I want. I want you with me. I want you safe. I want you healed. I want you fixed. I want no more tears. I want sin gone. That's what I want for you. And if you don't want that, you don't want me, so you won't get that. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If we don't want Jesus, we have no way, there is no truth, and you're not going to have any life. That's pretty straightforward, yeah? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for you. Because I want everyone that can hear my voice, see my face, everyone in this room, to know that you know God and he knows you. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, collectively, while we have a moment of clarity, we know that you're calling us deeper with you. For some of us, God, we don't even know what that means. All we know is that it's right. We want to know you. And so right now, while we have a moment of breather without the distractions of outside, we own our garbage. We admit to the selfish things that we do, that we make this world all about us. God, some of us, we may be moral on the outside, but Lord, our hearts are not with you and we want to apologize and say we're sorry. Would you please forgive us? Would you transform our hearts? Would you rescue us and save us? We want to make the right choice that you have said that you're willing to deliver us. We want that. And whatever that means, whatever that entails, we surrender to that process. 
that it's, that it's no longer about our agenda. It's all about you. And so God, we need you to clean us up. We need you to make us have white brand new garments. We need a new heart. We need a new soul. We need a new life. And so we're asking right now, God, as we, as we admit to who we are and we become realistic on where we're at, save us from that place. Save us and take us to heaven with you. Make us new right here, right now. Let our eternal life begin today. Not because we're good enough, but precisely because we're not. But you are. You are good enough. You're more than good. That you are the one that has done everything we cannot do for ourselves. We want that. So rescue us, save us, put us on a different trajectory, allow us to live different lives and do different things and think different things, change our heart to want what you want and hate what you hate. Renew us, renovate us, transform us, set us free from all the, the bondage and the, the addiction and the junk that we have here in our lives on this earth. Make us new. Father, we, we repent. We own it, and we want it different, and we want you more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.